Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode two of Adam Worms Random Stuff. Today, I'm honored to be hosting Margaret Susan Thompson. Margaret's a professor of history and political science at the Maxwell School at Syracuse University. Um, Margaret is a remote friend. I'm not sure that we've ever met in person yet, but we live quite close to one another. And I'm really interested to hear her talk about today's topic, which I'm terming feminism, faith, and the Christian left in the White House. So thank you so much for joining me, Margaret. And um, from this point forward, I'm going to address you as Peggy. That's great. It's good to talk with you. So Margaret, um, let's, Peggy, see, I started already. Let's, um, let's I talk. I answer to both. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, your journey. One of the things that I was really interested in um, and thank you so much for sending me some information about your history is I was really interested in learning about your journey into sort of social action in the Catholic Church um, with a feminist eye that you uh, garnered over many years of involvement. Um, so I'd really like to hear more about that. Right. Well, I'm a convert to the Catholic Church. And most people, I think, who convert to any religion become very uh, committed to a kind of uh, official or institutional approach to whatever faith that might be, as if they've found truth of some kind of absolute source. And I didn't become a Catholic that way. Um, I started studying the history of American nuns, uh, and it was through both the historical figures I was studying and some of the present-day sisters who I came to know as I started to do my research, that I became attracted to the Catholic Church, in effect, through their mediation. And many of these sisters were very committed to social justice, to political action. Many of them were our feminists, um, not the historical ones so much as the present ones. And so... Uh, my conversion was to a kind of progressive Catholicism that um, has still remained at the foundation of my participation. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing that personal sort of story about it. And also, like, I'd really like to hear a bit about how the nuns who you're interacting with maybe led you down that path of understanding that um, aspect of social justice and social change, and in particular, that brand of feminism that was expressed from nuns, because I think we often don't think about nuns as being feminist for many reasons. Right. I think when I first started doing this research, I was not yet a Catholic. I was not that familiar with the whole phenomenon of nuns. And so I went to a Catholic directory and looked up organizations of Catholic sisters. And I don't know whether it was just the time at which I did this, but most of the sisters I was connected with through that, those initial inquiries, um, were themselves feminists, one of whom eventually became my godmother when I did become Catholic. And it was through them that I learned about the foundations of their faith being 
at the foundation of their commitment to social justice. Now, let me go back even further in my life and say, this did not surprise me. I grew up in the segregated American South, um, and my father was particularly involved in the civil rights movement. Um, I would accompany him to various meetings and various uh, demonstrations and so on. And many of those were led by and certainly involved with um, progressive churches, most of them in that situation, black churches, but a few white churches. Um, and so I was used to a, pro a progressive social justice approach to faith. And so it didn't surprise me when I found these sisters. And of course, I remembered reading about and seeing pictures of Catholic sisters who, for example, marched with Martin Luther King uh, from Selma to Montgomery in 1965 and were involved in other civil rights demonstrations. So again, none of this really surprised me. Yeah, that, I mean, way, that makes a lot of sense. My godmother was one of the nuns who was on that march from Selma to Montgomery. That must have been pretty amazing and inspiring to, to learn Absolutely. that. Absolutely. She was that. an incredible woman. She died in 2002, unfortunately, but she was a remarkable woman. That's amazing. Are you willing to share her name? Yes, I'd be proud to. Her name was Margaret Ellen Traxler. And Margaret Ellen was a member of the School Sisters of Notre Dame. She was actually from rural Minnesota. And, uh, you know, but she spent much of her life living in Chicago and working in Chicago. That's a pretty amazing transformation of, of a person and, and then going down to Selma to march with Dr. King. Pretty That's right. uh, amazing as well. Yes. In terms of the concept here, and this is something that um, I really would like to learn a little bit more about. What, in your opinion, is the foundation of this idea of social justice within the Catholic Church in terms of like a liturgical foundation, like the idea behind or maybe the the text behind this that certainly somebody from my background might not know? Right. Well, I think... <laughs> You know, the Bible is a very complicated work, and it really, you can find evidence for a lot of different things in it. But I think for, for many Christians, the foundation would be in the book of Matthew, uh, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus calls on people to stand with the poor, stand with the hungry, the needy, and so forth. And there are other passages throughout the gospel that do that. The call for followers of Jesus to visit the imprisoned, to care for those who are hungry, um, and to care for those who are needy, to care for those who are persecuted. And so I think that would be a foundation. In terms of modern Catholicism, I think most people would trace Catholic social justice teaching 
back to the 1890s when the Pope at the time, Leo XIII, um, issued a document called Rerum Novarum. And it was in that document that we see a lot of the foundations of Catholic social teaching, Catholic social justice teaching in the modern world. And of course, it's been developed and expanded and so forth by various church authorities and by others, theologians and activists ever since. Now, Syracuse plays a really interesting and important part in that, which I didn't know when I became a Catholic, even though I was in Syracuse. And that is that some of the most important and um, influential social justice activists in modern Catholic, um, in the modern Catholic Church in the United States are actually from Syracuse, and those would be the Berrigan brothers, particularly Dan Berrigan, who was a Jesuit priest, Phil Berrigan, and Jerry Berrigan, who was a longtime professor and lifelong resident of Syracuse. He was a professor at OCC, Onondaga Community College. Well, that is kind of fascinating. It's always interesting to know that local and global interact in, in a lot of ways. I'm also wondering, in terms of the now, what's going on right now in our country and in the Catholic Church as well, I think many of us, you know, myself included, have seen uh, the current Pope and seen what we sense as a much more of a focus on social justice on equality, particularly, which I think is a really important thing that some of the early activism work, obviously the civil rights march was a big piece of equality, but that it's not charity, it's equality. And I think that that's, I often associate the church with charity, but with working towards equality, I find that kind of a fascinating ideal. Getting at the roots of injustice rather than treating the symptoms. Right. And 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 this this idea that I think we often I often feel that religion in many ways is often used to keep power structures the same rather than to work to alter them. Right, and um, I think that's certainly been true of the Catholic Church as well as many other religious bodies. Um, you know, and I will say, and I think we'll probably get to some of this later. That while I certainly agree with what you're saying about um, Pope Francis, and I am an admirer of his. Uh, I'll just say up front that his commitment to equality for women is not nearly as um, well-defined, let's say, as some of his other uh, commitments to social justice. I think that that has also been entirely clear. So right. I think that that, think that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I would 100% agree with that, obviously, but um, not feeling like an appropriate person <laughs> as, a, as a Jewish person to, to judge the, the, uh, the, the Pope. I do. I am encouraged by some of the things that he's put out, but um, and a lot of them. But I have also noted that gender equality has been something that has um, really not been a priority, frankly, for many liturgical bodies and many religions. Exactly. Um, exactly. In particular, and, I mean, I think he's certainly not as hostile as some other recent popes have been, but 
um, you know, if I if I want to be presumptuous and 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 say this, I think the Pope has a way to go. Well, that's okay. You, you don't always have to be a good Catholic, right? You can. Sometimes... Oh, I think I am a good Catholic. I think. <laughs> I, know, I, think I, I think that I think that Pope Francis appreciates the people who act on the basis of conscience and who are willing and 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 able to speak truth to power. Well, I think that that's a a really important aspect in any leader, in particular in a religious one. Um, the idea that people appreciate criticism or you know, dissent. Um, I think that's one of the interesting things that um, I often wonder about when discussing religious ideas is that, you know, as a as a person who's grown up in the sort of reform slash conservative Jewish tradition, one of the things that I've always found attractive by that um, is the idea that it's blind faith isn't really something that you're supposed to do. You're supposed to question. And I think that right. that's one of the things that I, and I was a member of the Episcopal church for a while. So I have a lot of fond memories of that. And one of the things that I really um, find valuable for me in the Jewish tradition is that idea of questioning. Right. And I, and I don't think that that's real. I think among a lot of the Catholics who I know, including a lot of the sisters I know, um, that would certainly be encouraged. Now, I wouldn't say that that's true across the board among Catholics, but uh, or among any religious community. But I've I've certainly uh, seen that among a number of the Catholic sisters who I've come to know and who have become very close friends of mine. Yeah, and that I think that that is probably often gives rise to the idea of social justice. I think my my impression is at least, and that that is one of the things that creates movement towards equality is questioning, is the right. idea. Well, well, one of the things I learned, I mean, I, most of my, my historical research in recent years has been on the history of Catholic nuns, and particularly their time in the United States. But I've had to look at some of the European history as well, because a number of their communities were, of course, founded in Europe. And when a new religious community is is founded, is organized, it's usually because something needs to be addressed that isn't being addressed. So it is almost always founded on the basis of some sort of critique of the status quo. That is incredibly fascinating. Honestly, I never, right. I never would have thought of it that way. Well, in the 1960s, one of the things that sisters and, and, and members of male religious orders as well were called to do by the Second Vatican Council is to look at their foundings, to go back into their own history, and to make sure that they were still being guided by the inspiration that had led to their founding to begin with. And for a lot of sisters, what they discovered was that their histories had been kind of sanitized and um, put into a mold that was not really descriptive of what had motivated their founders. And they found that many of their founders were people of 
not only tremendous faith, but people who are willing to take tremendous risks in order to meet the needs of their times, meet needs that they felt were not being met. That's that's really a very interesting concept to me. And I think that we, you know, it's almost the idea that is being generated for me is this idea that these orders were actually founded by people who were in some ways rebels, which I think is yes. just not the idea that anybody would ever have. Like, oh, you founded an order of nuns. You go, rebel. But well, it's it really like funny. That- I'll give you I'll give you an example. There was a sister in Indiana who came over from France and then established her community in the United States, and it eventually became independent of the French community that had originally sent her. And shortly after she got here, she got into real controversy with her local bishop, and um, he he did not, this gets very much into the deep weeds of Catholicism, he put her under interdict, which means that she and her sisters could not receive the sacraments. It was one step short of being excommunicated. Now, that eventually got resolved. It did take very long. But this woman has since been canonized, and she's now regarded as a saint in the Catholic Church. So I found that a lot of these women who were originally um, considered quite controversial would eventually be regarded as role models and regarded as great spiritual teachers. And this was a woman named uh, Mother Theodore Guerin, the one I was just talking about, who founded the Sisters of Providence in Indiana. In, uh, Indiana. That's, that's a great story, and I think a really good opportunity to maybe segue to the second portion of this, um, where we're going to talk a little bit, hopefully, about what's going on in the White House, where we now have the second Catholic president, I believe. Right. Hopefully, you're more an expert than I am, but I believe it's the second. Um, yes, you're right. And, no, you're right. And at a time when I think, particularly in this country, we're tying religion very tightly and have, you know, the term the Christian right has been so in our faces. Um, but I think in this last election, we've started to see the the emergence as a political power of the Christian left. Or at least the Christian progressive middle, um, right. and I think I think that's really kind of a fascinating ideal that history, in what you were saying previously, history has judged these folks that were seen as rebels and seemed like they were pushing the boundaries of the Catholic faith and religion at the time has found it in particular associated with with some of the nuns who you were discussing has found it so compelling their actions and their willingness to sort of buck the trend that they end up canonized. Right. But let's not forget that there has been uh, a powerful Christian left in this uh, country before. Um, We can go back to the progressive era when a lot of the social reformers, uh, the people who founded a lot of the settlement houses and things like that, um, were motivated by faith and motivated by religion. We can look at the civil rights movement in the 1960s. I mean, Martin Luther King uh, was was a, a reverend. He was ordained. And many of those who worked with him, particularly in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, were motivated by their faith. So, um, you know, this is something that comes and goes, but it's always been there in the American 
uh, activist tradition. And of course, we can go back to the abolitionists, many of whom were very religious. Yeah. And that, you know, it's interesting. I think that we certainly I have forgotten that and some of it I never knew, um, which is why it's wonderful to have somebody with such a depth of historical and religious understanding to talk to and learn from. And I think that that is something that we kind of have forgotten. And I think it's interesting to see it at least to my eye or to what I see as reemerging again. Well, it's interesting. I remember reading a book by Jerry Falwell, who nobody would, including himself, would associate (laughs) with the progressive religious tradition. But he was certainly somebody who was a political activist motivated by his understanding of religious faith. And he said in this autobiographical writing that he was inspired by the civil rights activists. And he said if they could use their religious foundations to impel them to be activists, you know, in their direction, he could too. So he learned from progressive um, Christians, he said. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense in that the inspiration or the tactics or the ability for one to take action or to make their action compelling or their speech compelling doesn't necessarily have to meld with the intention. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, he certainly learned those strategies. And again, this isn't just a Christian thing. We see it in um, Jewish um, activism as well. We see it with somebody like Mahatma Gandhi. We see it in a variety of religious traditions. So I think it's important to realize that this is not unique to Christianity or certainly to Catholicism. Certainly. Um, I think that 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 probably has existed in many religious traditions throughout almost all of history. I mean, I think some of the idea behind religion in general is the idea that you're kind of there to help other people. You know, that's that's (laughs) some of the basics. So in terms of what's going on right now, um, in terms of, you know, the, the current occupant of the white house, Joe Biden, who certainly as Syracuse natives, we all feel a certain strong affinity to, Right. Um, and as Syracuse University associated individuals. Exactly. Um, how is it, how do you think he is expressing these sort of progressive Catholic religious ideals in the White House? Is that something that you see as under the surface or more overt? I think it's a little bit of both, interestingly. Um, I think for Joe Biden, his faith is so much a part of him that he often, it's it's not something he necessarily has to articulate or he has to kind of acknowledge in an explicit way. But he talks about the fact that this is what shaped him as an individual. This is what has sustained him through some really terrible personal tragedies that he has had in his life, the loss of his first wife, the loss of his young daughter at that time, and then later, uh, more recently, uh, his son, Beau. Um, And he talks about how his faith has really given him strength 
and given him a foundation for his own personal journey. But he also, I think, demonstrates through his reliance of, on certain scriptural texts, uh, his references, even in some of his major speeches to uh, Catholic uh, hymns, uh, and his um, his commitment to certain teachings that are clearly, if not pursued solely because they conform to Catholic social teaching, they certainly are compatible with Catholic social teaching. His opposition, for example, to the death penalty, his idea of a living wage, his support for um, workers, um, his notion that health care is not a privilege but a right, these kinds of things. So you see that as, it, it sounds like one of the ways that it's perceived is that the foundations that he built are foundations of progressive Catholicism. Those are foundations that he's sort of tuned into those ideas that we were discussing earlier of that idea of not just charity, but equality and the idea of being a person in the world who makes those things important. Yeah, I think that's true. And again, I don't think, I don't know if he would define them as progressive Catholic teachings or whether he would just describe them as Catholic teachings. Because even um, when it comes to some of these teachings about economic injustice and so forth, you can see it in the writings of, of say, Pope John Paul II, who was not really uh, defined as a progressive by most people. And yet he wrote about economic inequality um, very, very strongly and very movingly. So I don't think he would see it necessarily as progressive Catholicism, but I think that's what it is. And certainly some of the Catholics that he has been turning to for um, advice, for counsel, are of a more progressive bent than we might have seen in, in previous administrations, such as, I mean, I think George W. Bush, uh, talked with religious leaders, including Catholic leaders, quite a lot. Um, and we see it also, frankly, with um, the controversy that some of his positions has have been met with by some of the Catholic bishops. And I, of course, I'm talking especially about his um, pro-choice position on abortion. Yes, what I would think would be a particularly difficult one. I'm interested to hear a little bit more about your knowledge, and it sounds like it's something that you're interested in as well, of the the people that uh, President Biden is turning to um, for counsel within the Catholic Church. Are there some specific examples of folks there who might... Well, you know, I, I, I'm assuming that there are a lot more that I'm not going to be able to... Um, to, to name right off the top of my head. But one group that he has clearly um, been in contact with, uh, their leaders spoke at the Democratic Convention uh, and so on, 
would be um, a group called Network. And it was a, a Catholic social, it is a Catholic social justice lobby that was founded uh, around 1970. So it's around 50 years old um, by a group of Catholic nuns, actually. And their director, who is stepping down as director after quite a number of years, um, but who is pretty well known, is a woman named Sister Simone Campbell. And she is both an attorney and a sister. And they are explicitly a Catholic social justice lobby. Sister Simone Campbell uh, spoke at the Democratic Convention in 2012, and she spoke again at the Democratic Convention this year, in, or last year, in 2020. And I know that uh, Joe Biden has been um, somebody that has followed the recommendations of Network has been uh, committed as they are to a, a range of social justice teachings. Um, so I would, I would point to her as an example. Another example I would point to is the current Archbishop Cardinal Wilton Gregory in um, Washington, D.C., who is the first African-American Cardinal in the American Catholic Church. Um, and he is um, I would not say he was you know, on the far left of anything, but he's certainly an outspoken advocate of um, interracial justice, of opposing racism, and of Catholic social teachings generally. And um, he, I think, is somebody that President Biden would look at as a religious um, counselor and, and somebody whose teachings he would definitely respect. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. It's really what I love about learning about this kind of thing is seeing the connections. Mm -hmm. um, and I see this super substantial connection between what we were talking about earlier with, you know, the the social justice being driven a lot by nuns with a very sort of feminist attitude and mm -hmm. ideals in a lot of ways. And that now we're seeing a president who... I think is expressing at least, you know, some aspects of the Christian left in the White House. Right. And he's talking to these folks. He's talking to sisters and Oh, he was educated to, by sisters. Yeah. He had he had sister teachers earlier in his life. And he's always acknowledged that. Ah. So we get even a little bit deeper under the layers of that's right. I mean, those influences might have played out throughout his life. Well, let me point out that there have always been more sisters than there are priests in the United States. And if you were a Catholic of Joe Biden's age, uh, going to church every Sunday and going to Catholic school you were spending one or two hours a week with the priest, but you were spending six or seven hours a day with the sisters. So who was really representing and, and, and embodying Catholic teaching to you as a little kid? Sounds like it was the sisters. Well, you know, they might not have said that. And, you know, I don't think a lot of people may have thought of it that Clearly, but clearly that was what was going on. 
Yeah. And now, it, that's it, not it, to say that all these sisters were progressive social justice advocates. They weren't. But people were used to seeing women as as represented as ministers, maybe not as ordained priests, obviously, but as people who were engaged in the ministry of the church. And in teaching, in teaching and children. In teaching, and in nursing, and in doing the various things that the Sermon on the Mount and other parts of the gospel um, tell Christians, quite frankly, that they're supposed to do. Right. Well, that that makes an an awful lot of sense, and in thinking about it, it it to me seems like you can kind of tie a string from the history that you've talked about of sisters in the United States and the formation of those orders towards the betterment of social justice to organizations that you've just discussed, like Network. That Absolutely, are you know maybe they're not orders of sisters, but they're kind of the same thing. And that right. that influence across time and now even throughout President Biden's life and now in his presidency, we're seeing the results of that. And, and let me be clear, I don't think they're always going to agree 100% of the time on every single thing that President Biden does or doesn't do. But I think one of the things that Catholic social justice activists are excited about is that there seems to be somebody in the White House who will at least listen to them, who will at least talk with them in a way that wasn't, hasn't always been the case. For sure. I think, you know, an interesting topic that you brought up, and um, I think it's really important to note it is, you know, President Biden's support of pro-choice and the idea that that is, I think, for a lot of folks, seemingly incompatible with Catholicism. Yes. And that yet he still maintains these very strong beliefs in Catholicism and very strong relationships within the Catholic community. Well, first of all, I think, and, and a lot of Catholics would disagree with this. So, um, you know, I, I want to make it clear that what I'm saying here has, is not supposed to be taken as some kind of official teaching. But let me sort of suggest how I think President Biden looks at this. And that is that he believes it is important for him to separate his, what may be his personal convictions from the institutional teachings of the Catholic Church. To be pro-choice is not necessarily to be pro-abortion. And to say as president of the United States or as a senator or, you know, whatever your office might be, that you are going to defend the laws and the Constitution of the United States, um, one of which for now is um, that abortion is legal with certain, you know, limitations. Um, as president, he has to enforce the law. That makes and sense. so I think um, there's a difference between saying that you are personally opposed to abortion, but that is not what the law of the nation is right now. And the first Catholic to really, I think, articulate that clearly and um, 
very effectively, I think, and again, not everybody would agree, is was um, former New York governor Mario Cuomo, the father of the current governor, um, who in a 1986 speech at the University of Notre Dame took those people he was speaking with on a journey through his own personal um, his personal thoughts and his personal convictions on the relationship between religious practice and political action when it came to abortion. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's really important to think about things with the complexity that they actually exist with, rather than sometimes I think we tend to, I know we all tend to sort of take a reductionist view of all of these things and say, Catholic, pro-choice, no. And I think, and I think institutionally that's true. But the other thing that I'd like to point out is that for many Catholics, to be pro-life means more than opposing abortion. To be, and I think this is where we would find President Biden. To be pro-life also means to oppose the death penalty to oppose a variety of policies that work to undermine the quality of life of people, their ability to earn a living wage, their ability to have health care that they need, um, and so forth. And if you look at the range of policies that really relate to being pro-life, I think Joe Biden has a pretty good record. Now, there are Catholics, including a number of bishops, who would say the bottom line, the most important issue is abortion. And there can be no compromise on that. But let me point out that through, since 1973, when Roe v. Wade was decided, we have had a number of presidents beginning with Ronald Reagan, who have outspokenly and explicitly opposed abortion, and it is still legal in this country. Correct. I think also that one of the the things that we see, and I kind of, you know, I'm taking something actually from some people that, um, women that I've talked to about this, and I think that there's, in a lot of more progressive people's minds, the anti-abortion is a part of a complex of the kind of conservatism that we were discussing earlier, which is often enforced through religion of keeping power structures the same. And frankly, you know, from a lot of perspectives, continuing to make put women in a subservient role in society. Absolutely. I mean, why? Let me put it this way. In the in the catechi- in the uh, code of canon law of the Catholic Church, there are a few things that are specified as resulting in what they would call automatic excommunication. That means if you do these things, you are automatically excommunicated. That doesn't mean that you can't be reconciled with the Catholic Church, but it means by doing these, you excommunicate yourself. One of them is having an abortion, or being directly involved in somebody having an abortion, okay? 
And the justification mm-hmm. for that, of course, is that under that belief system, it's because abortion is murder, right? But here's the thing. Committing murder is not grounds for automatic excommunication. If I were to shoot you in a premeditated way and kill you, or if I were to get, you know, stand, you know, stand on a balcony of a building and, and randomly shoot all kinds of people, that would clearly be murder. But, and, and I think everybody, including the Catholic Church, would agree that that was not a good thing to do. But it would not be grounds for automatic excommunication. So there's something different about abortion. And I think that's where the controversy, some of that controversy sits. It's it's fascinating because that just kind of highlights how it's so important how religions see things and how they get things across and how people find particular pieces of the religion that they ascribe to as compelling as important and also the way that sometimes religion acts to enforce power. Right. And I mean, I don't think the opposite of being anti-abortion, quite honestly, is being pro-abortion. In other words, I don't think that those who are pro-choice necessarily, or in most cases, in fact, would say abortion's a good thing and there shouldn't be any kind of limits on it. So I think what President Biden would say, and I, I obviously I can't speak for him, but from the way I have observed what he's had to say and, and some of what he's written, he would say that it's a very complicated and very difficult issue. And it's not just something that is absolutely categorically one way or the other. Now, there are people, and I think people who are of good faith, who would disagree with that and say, no, it is a matter of of just clear-cut yes and no. Yeah, and I think that, uh, and we probably should start to wrap up because- yeah. I certainly could talk about this stuff forever, which is often the situation I find myself in when doing these, which is great. Um, But I think that it really goes back a lot to what you were saying about just this idea that um, there's a separation between the political and the personal, but also that being pro-life doesn't just mean being anti-abortion and that there's from my perspective, some somewhat of an element of hypocrisy if you say that nobody should ever, ever, ever have an abortion, but we don't, you know, helping poor people out, making sure we have uh, equality for folks, making sure people have health care and enough to eat, and immigrants are treated with respect and dignity, and all of the types of things that I think are pro-humanity, pro-human yes. life. Yes, I think you're right. You know, are you know, the incompatible with that. Exactly. And I think that we've seen that already with President Biden. He's talked about health care. He's talked about um, rights for LGBT people. He's talked about um, rights for immigrants. He's talked about 
a living wage. He's talked about a lot of things and he's not been president for, well, I guess today is, is one month since he became president. He was inaugurated yeah, a month ago. Uh, today, we're, we're recording this on February 20th. And I think he hasn't even talked, just talked about it. He's actually tried to do stuff about exactly. it, which is even better. Exactly. And so he's, he's got a view of, um, of pro-life that I think is, is richer and more complex, but also fuller than, than just looking at a single I think that I would agree with that. And I really want to thank you for all of your time. And well, talking. I thank you for uh, hosting this conversation. Well, it's, it's, it's always fun for me to learn new things. And that's why I do this. And I'm trying to find ways for people to sort of teach broadly, but also to <laughs> help me learn stuff and hopefully help other people through my process of hearing to some of these things. Um, and well, I, think I really appreciate your inviting me. Thank you.